Please believe me when I say that I am perfectly delighted that this audio interview is with a personal hero of mine, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, and I cannot praise this man enough. He was one of the very first academics to look into this subject back in the early 1960s, and he has continued to be a pivotal player in the modern UFO lore. This man, he is now 80 years old, and in my opinion, he is at the top of his game, and his biography reads like a set of bulleted points of all the major UFO stories in the last 50 years. It's so impressive. Let me say that this is a big-hearted man uh, with a perfectly childlike sense of wonder that surrounds this whole set of strange and conflicting ideas. I am continually impressed with the way he looks at these things, and I will also say he has shaped a lot of the ways that I look at these things. I read his book, Soul Samples, and then uh, made a sort of pilgrimage to go off and meet him in Laramie, Wyoming, which is, uh, by Western standards, not too far from where I live, and sat with the guy for an hour, and yeah, I was just, I was thunderstruck with with his uh, very gentle, open ways. He laughs a lot, and he laughs in the face of some very uh, scary and, and challenging data. Uh, I'll say more than just data, personal stories. I uh, feel deeply honored to know the guy, and I also consider him my friend. Uh, There have been points when I have called him up out of the blue, and he's answered the phone. And and those phone calls came at a, you know, I don't know how to say this, you know, the dark night of my soul, as far as my looking into this. And in those interactions, he was very much like he is in this interview. He was um, warm and a very good listener, and he managed to laugh. I won't waste any more time with this intro because there's all I could do was just is just praise, praise, praise the man. And there's no need to do that because just listening to his voice, his warm-hearted, full of love, and uh, laugh-out-loud nature will tell you more than anything I'm going to tell you here. This audio interview was recorded Monday... January 3rd, 2010. Please enjoy. This is Leo Sprinkle speaking. Good morning, Leo. This is Mike Cleland. Good morning, Mike. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. How's everything going? Doing well. Good. Got sunshine on the horizon today. We've had cold wind and snow for several days, so this looks better. Yeah, I've been... um, uh Skiing. I finally. I just. I was visiting my family over uh, the holidays, and I just got back. And I skied yesterday, and it was oh. absolutely astoundingly beautiful. Uh, ah, I live in a very I nice that. place. I, I just live right on the other side of the um, Wyoming border here in Idaho. Oh yes. Uh-huh. Hey, Leo. I just want to say um, thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, and and I and I just look to you as a very strong resource in this uh, very complicated and challenging subject i've been involved for many years and it's a pleasure to talk with you because of uh, your work in documenting various comments from people about their experiences but also uh, those of us who've had the et encounters ourselves uh, i think that's adds to our experience i remember talking years ago to a reporter in Canada at an international UFO conference, and he said, what do you say to skeptics? And I said, well, if they're truly skeptics, that's one thing, but if they're debunkers, 
I said, I don't really like to talk to them because they're no fun. But I said, if a person is truly skeptical and wants to know uh, how to be involved in UFO research, I say, well, read a thousand reports, talk to a hundred people, have your own experience, and then we can really talk. <laughs> and he looked at me like, oh, yeah, I guess the experience is, uh, is important because so many people want evidence, and that means physical evidence, to either back their story or to, uh, uh, to evaluate somebody else's story. I'm reminded that uh, some people over the years have said there's two kinds of information. There are stories and then there are maps. Well, if we had maps, if we had documents, if we had all those things from ETs, then the game would be over. But mainly what we have are stories, and some stories are better than others. So it's fun to talk about uh, what people are claiming uh, has been their experience. Yeah, you mentioned skeptic, and uh, and I think that's something that I, I, I struggle with, uh, mostly because um, you know I, I feel like I have a healthy level of skepticism, and I enjoy listening to people tell their stories. And at the same time, I also, uh, you know, recognize that that um, there's deception and theater oftentimes in these stories, and oftentimes the stories come out more as as uh, like almost mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways uh, that's part of the uh, uh, system. I think uh, J. Allen Hynek said it very well. He said, the UFO phenomenon continues on its own. It doesn't require a government grant. doesn't require somebody giving it permission. <laughs> it just keeps on rolling. And so uh, uh, there are some, and, and Jacques Vallée, he said the same thing. You could, you could have a story from a person who was a certified psychotic in an insane asylum, and the report might be better than from somebody who uh, felt that his or her uh, social status was affected by the experience so that a person in a military organization or in a social caste system uh, might uh, not even talk about his or her experience for fear of being ostracized or demoted or whatever might happen in that particular person's situation. So, So in some ways, I feel that uh, there is as much a likelihood of a person downplaying an experience or minimizing or distorting it uh, out of uh, fear than uh, a person distorting his or her experience uh, out of aggrandizement. Yeah, very true. And, in, in, uh, you know, I've been keeping a journal, a diary of my own set of experiences, mm-hmm. and I've been, and this includes dreams, which I think are a very powerful part of the whole phenomena. And I've been, you know, writing them down as soon as I can, you know, writing them down, you know, the next day or the next hour, as soon as I can possibly write these things down. And then I'll, you know, months will go by and potentially years will go by and then I'll find that written document. And what I, what I do in telling the story is I, is I subtract from, from what I originally wrote. I, I try to, it seems to come out a little, a little more bland almost because I, I almost feel embarrassed to, oh, to share the, the more bizarre or, or, or strange aspects of these phenomena. Yeah, it's so rich, so varied. You say it's closer to mythology. And of course, that's what Carl Jung, the Swiss psychoanalyst, psychiatrist, uh, argued in his book that, uh, 
the experience can either be thought of as two ways. Uh, either there's a physical phenomenon onto which we project our own views, and that's one kind of a myth, or uh, that we are uh, describing something, archetypes, uh, that are generally view, general views about humankind and our relationship with the gods. Uh, but of course, the the evidence of it is the physical phenomenon is there. Now the question is, how do we respond to all those things? And, and it's not only physical phenomenon in, uh, in the sense of a craft or an object on the ground or tracings on the mud or film or that kind of physical evidence, but also our reaction, our responses uh, uh, to whatever is happening uh, in our view of the outside world. That's why so many people are uh, frightened by the phenomenon, because they're afraid of ESP, they're afraid of spirituality, as well as the possibility that there might be angels or demons around them. Yeah, and this is something I, that I have, I've mentioned before. You know, there's if MUFON comes to take a, a report, you know, they show up at your house, they take a report, they mm -hmm. take some, you know, photographs of the burn mark in the backyard, uh, they have a... a you know, a little checklist of how they proceed, and, uh, you know, a tidy port report gets created, and then they, they drive off. You know, the, what I am actually more interested in is is coming back a year later and talking to those uh -huh. same people and saying, like, how has your spirituality changed? How has your definition of reality changed? How, you know, any any uh, uh, curious side effects that, that you wouldn't have expected that you feel are related to this, whether that means they... Yeah, that's good. I can't remember the name of the investigator, but he said... Uh, something along the same line that when you first see a person who's been through a ET encounter, person's uh, hair may be messed up, uh, he or she may be uh, frightened or angry or puzzled or not very uh, lucid or coherent in description. And then you come back a few years later, now they've got a report and they're tidied up and not only have they grown, but their relationships with others so it's an interesting uh, notion about how long do you uh, take in terms of uh, not only filing a report, but also finding out what's happened to the person. Uh, so some people think of ETs as invaders. Some of them think of them as intruders. Some of them think of them as instructors. And some as initiators, that they are initiating individual uh, experiences. And then the person goes on a journey. Uh, just like a person would say, uh, why don't you come along with me? We'll go to a college. Uh, college, what's that? <clears throat> well, that's uh, like high school, but there are more courses, more teachers. More courses, more teachers, how can that be? <laughs> and so some people find that their experience uh, not only has uh, caused them to uh, look back at their previous existence as a kind of uh, barren or bland, but also... Uh, open up possibilities of not only many, many civilizations, but many, many levels of knowledge. And I love that term journey, and I, and I think that, that um, I would not have proceeded forward with, with my own uh, personal investigation had it not been for a, a quote from Joseph Campbell, who was a, a investigative mythologist, mm -hmm. and I just had, I was listening to an audio recording of him, and he spoke about the Knights of the Round Table, 
And he said that they were, you know, they were off to search for the grail, but in order to do it, you know, they were, they were righteous knights. So they, they realized they each had to have their own individual adventure. They couldn't do it as a team. It had to be a very individual quest. Mm. And then instead of, um, you know, riding off down the road to look for their adventure, they each went to the darkest point of the forest and, and left the trail where there was no path. And I thought yeah. that metaphor yeah. was so... Uh, oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, this is uh, what many people argue, that the uh, encounter with an extraterrestrial <clears throat> is like an encounter with an angel or a, de- a devil. And uh, the person, uh, well, the hero's journey, Campbell talked about the hero's journey, the, the man or woman who feels uh, pulled away from society and uh, unable to uh, continue... Uh, on the journey without uh, some kind of courage, some kind of task or mission or chore or duty. And uh, when a person uh, finally decides, I've met with some people who waited 10 or 12 years before they came out of the closet, so to speak, before they admitted that they had had an encounter. And then they felt like they had to go through some kind of mission or task or chore. It might be joining a group, it might be writing down their story, it might be sharing it, it might be... uh, be a better parent or an artist or an athlete or whatever it is that they saw themselves doing. But once they uh, decided to embark upon the journey, then uh, all kinds of coincidences, synchronicities occurred, sometimes uh, painful, sometimes pleasant, uh, helping them not only complete the journey, but then return back to the uh, society and share their story with other people around them. It's a, it's a marvelous way to get people uh, not only energized, but also uh, to be more productive. Yeah, and the, and the synchronicity thing, um, you know, people will often ask me, like, oh, what kind of experiences are you having now? And I don't really have a good answer to that. And the only thing I do have <laughs> is, uh, you know, what I say is, like, you know, that it's been manifesting as profound synchronicities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm reading a book now on uh, synchronicity by a guy named Lance Storm. He's a psychologist out of Australia. <clears throat> he has a, many, many writers. Uh, nobody yet is talking about ET stuff, but uh, many of the writers are not only describing personal uh, coincidences, but from a professional standpoint, physicists, psychologists, parapsychologists. And uh, what's intriguing to me is that uh, humankind seems to be moving from an old Newtonian model of physics to the quantum physics, the new model of science. And uh, to me, ETs are helping us uh, recognize that uh, the world is much more uh, complex and has many more levels of uh, consciousness than we previously uh, described from a, either a scientific or religious standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that seems to show up um, consistently in the way people try to articulate this. It seems like presently we mm-hmm. have, a, have like a new 
set of vocabulary words that have been ushered in by, uh, you know, the newer physics. You know, it's very easy. And I'm, I, I'm not a physicist, so I don't really even know what quantum physics means. I don't know what another dimension means. I don't know what, uh, you know, parallel realm means. But these things are, are bandied about in the... What's his name? Um, Michio Kaku is a great spokesman, and he'll, he'll, he's very skilled at, at uh, mm. simplifying these things and trying to articulate these things in a way that someone like me can can wrap my mind around it. But, I, but at the same time, we, we have a... Uh, a folklore to mythology that is full of things that that tell of other realms, whether that's ghost stories yes. or, or just the term oh. heaven or these terms and these concepts are, are hardwired. And it seems like the cutting edge of modern physics is catching up to to age old mythologies. Yes, the uh, the new scientists are talking like the old mystics and that everything is connected, energy. And consciousness is more important than force and matter, uh, which allows not only ESP, reincarnation, uh, spiritual uh, adventures that previously were only thought of as uh, mystical possibilities or illusions. Now the illusion seems to be that this is a uh, physical world that is uh, only responds to uh, uh, force, whereas the the sense of power or spiritual power now becomes more important because consciousness and energy carry information according to the physicists. And that's what the ancient mystics have said too. That, uh, so now it's so exciting, not only that, uh, quote, religion, unquote, unquote, science, unquote, uh, are coming together, but also it seems that uh, this is the way that ET human interactions are going, that humans who claim to have uh, ET encounters not only talk science, but they talk uh, spirituality as well. There's a study that was done, and uh, and I and I don't have the information in front of me, so I'm just going to paraphrase as best as I can. But they took subjects and they gave them a set of um, just uh, intelligence tests, you know, just like problem solving. Mm. And then they had them read, uh, you know, what would be an absurd story. I think they read a Franz Kafka short story. So something that didn't make any sense, that was challenging, that was completely absurd. And then they, they, they ran them through another battery of tests, and they found that their actual intellect level and their problem solving uh, and their creative thinking was enhanced by, by being mm. confronted with the absurd. And Yeah, so, so on one level I see you know, like humanity's interaction with the the UFO phenomena and all its associated weirdness, almost like a, a, a needed tool to enhance our problem solving as, as citizens of the planet. Yeah, that we are not only uh, experiencing consternation and puzzlement, but that we... Uh, have to uh, find some way to uh, explain to ourselves what we're experiencing. Yeah, so that so that would go along with the results of the experiment you're describing. That when confronted with absurdity, we galvanize ourselves, or we energize ourselves, or we re reapproach uh, what it is that we're doing. Huh, interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating, and and it seems that um, when confronted with the absurd which I feel like I've been confronted with is in dealing with this, uh, this phenomena, I am left to simply say, you know, this is, you know, something is happening outside of my realm and it's challenging and I may not ever find an answer. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, a guy named Buck, a Canadian psychiatrist, <clears throat> in a book, uh, 1905, uh, Cosmic Consciousness, described uh, his study of uh, people mostly male at that time, although now there are more females who have this kind of experience uh, reported. But he was describing uh, this encounter with uh, mystical uh, forces and how people responded. And... Uh, there are a lot of different uh, characteristics, but some that stand out, people either see a blinding light or they feel like they are engulfed in uh, spiritual light. Their sense of right and wrong shifts. Instead of uh, perceiving a lot of evil in the world, they perceive uh, evil, as m at least at the level of humans, as to be more uh, based on ignorance. Right? If a person knew uh, that he or she would uh, suffer in another lifetime for killing somebody or for stealing or raping or whatever, a person might not do it. Uh, just like we see a little kid will do something thoughtlessly and then later on wish that he hadn't had done that. So that people not only increase their awareness uh, as a result of these experiences, but they also felt connected to the whole world. And uh, the people I work with who uh, fill out survey forms about their experiences they may not say so right at the time but in after a few years not only do they feel more connected to other humans and plants and animals in the natural world but they also feel connected uh, to what they perceive to be more of a spiritual or a, a higher level of intelligence so uh, it's, it's very exciting to see uh, people respond to uh, this kind of pressure or this kind of experience. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And I, and I look at my own life where um, I did not look into this until 2006, which is now only four years ago. Um, and uh, the actual act of looking, I mean, I had these life experiences that, uh, you know, were odd and, and certainly pointed to uh, some sort of UFO contact though um and i was very skilled i had a way of you know i could actually sit around you know uh, a dinner table and and uh, share some of these stories and i could tell them in a way where where i would uh, subtract the the uh, the drama from it in a way where where it would instead it would be me you know just telling like this oh this nice little you know curious story isn't that interesting and in a way that was almost a form of denial you know, these stories were <laughs> profound, and, and I was capable of just sort of offhandedly sharing some of these things. Like, oh, isn't that interesting? Where, um, you know, at the core of these stories, you know, uh, you know, missing time event and, and uh, sighting a UFO fairly close when I was a boy. Um, these, these uh, you know, the act of looking into that, uh, I thought it would be this tidy exercise. I thought I would... Um, you know, look into it. I would get a few answers. Mm -hmm. Some some smart people who do UFO research would uh, explain some things away, and it would be nice and tidy. And and then uh, then I would just proceed on with my with my life. Uh, and, right. and not so. Yeah. True. True. Yeah. It changes. Uh, it changes not only one's perspective. It changes one's uh, journey or path that they have. I, I know the same way it took me many, many years uh, helping other people before I accepted my own childhood experience of being on board a craft with a guy uh, who was in a spacesuit. <clears throat> and in 1940, 10 years old, 
fifth grade um, that I couldn't grasp it. I couldn't handle it consciously. It wasn't until I was 50 years old, um, 40 years later, they went through hypnosis and and learned uh, more about the experience. It took me another 10 years to accept it as something more than just a psychological uh, illusion or fantasy or daydream. Uh, but I felt like I was told uh, by the guy, Leo, learn to read and write well. When you grow up, you can help other people learn more about their purpose in life. And, of course, a 10-year-old, what does a 10-year-old know about purpose in life? Uh, much less helping other people find out about their purpose in life. So it was a long journey. But uh, finally, when I accepted it, I realized I was on the path, and the way to follow that path is not only be conscious uh, of what's happening at the head level, but also to be accepting at the heart level or the, or the intuitive level. Um, and many people feel like they are guided both uh, left brain, right brain, or both head and heart in their mission or their task or their purpose. So, so in your youth, what was your what was your memory? Um, I mean, before you went through the hypnotic regression, what was your? Uh... Uh, I had some strange experiences uh, that I described as nightmares. Um, I would uh, wake up uh, in, a, in a kind of sweat or kind of fear. The uh, nightmare that I consciously remembered was a crab. A uh, big animal, uh, like you know, with claws and so forth. And um, sometimes, my in the nightmare, my mother would come with a broom and chase it away. Well, when I got a little older, I went into a psychology uh, you know, as a as a student. I thought to myself, well, that's uh, that crab is my dad. He's he's born in July, and so the the sign of the cancer, and he was. A loving man, but he was very strict. If we didn't do our chores or if we left tools out to rust in the rain or something like that, well, the razor strap would come off the wall and it would sing its song. We'd do our dance. And so I grew up uh, thinking that I would uh, not only be able to be a, a good boy, but a, a good student because he said he wanted us to be good students, my older brother, my younger brother, and my sister and I. Well, I took him at his word went through college, graduate school, got the doctorate in counseling psychology, and then I realized when I got older that what he meant was to be a good citizen, to do what's right, you know, to help um, be a member of the community. So it's interesting now how I uh, use that earlier experience and past lives, views as being guard and warrior and uh, priest and I use that now in my view that I want to be a good citizen, not only of Laramie, Wyoming, of the United States of America. Like Thomas Jefferson, he said, I'm no longer a Virginian, I am an American. Well, he meant he was moving up in terms of his allegiance. Well, now I see not only the planet as humanity's allegiance, but I see beyond the planet so that we become cosmic citizens in some kind of galactic federation. So I'm prepared to uh, move in that direction and be a good citizen at each level. There was a, um, I'm going to do another, paraphrase another quote from Joseph Campbell, where he basically said, our old myths aren't serving us anymore. You know, if you look at old mythology, it's, uh, you know, one warring yeah. tribe against the other, you know, so when the, you know, when the right. rival tribe comes over the hill, you know, there, you know, we, there's all kinds of uh, associated mythology that, that, uh, 
is associated with your brothers and sisters here in your tribe. Um, right. That has that no longer serves a purpose in in a world you know with such rapid communications and as well as such horrendous uh, warfare tools. Yeah. So so yeah, we're one big tribe. You know. Yeah, <clears throat> and he would say like our old myths are no longer serving us the way they once did, and then you know then the proper follow up response was well what are our new myths and and he <laughs> said he said I you know our new myths need to be formed. They need to. They need, and, and uh, there's no way to to know what the new myth will be any more than we know what tomorrow night's dream will be. But he does know that the that the new myth will require that we are now citizens of the earth rather than citizens of a tribe. Mm. And and when I heard that, I was just like, that is the UFO myth. That is the that's the narrative that's emerging from this from this. Uh, you know this disparate set of accounts, and that's certainly to me. Uh, you know what I see unfolding is that myth of, of you know we're no longer citizens of our of our country or tribe, but we are we are presently citizens of the globe. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you become citizens of the globe and realize that ETs around, well, then you start moving in the direction of are they Aginus or Furus? Uh, to me, there's two scenarios that people paint in regard to the uh, human humanity's relationship with ETs. One scenario is uh, good guy, bad guy. There, there are good ETs, there are bad ETs, and so we have to discern how we deal with each uh, group. Or the other scenario is good cop, bad cop. In that scenario, uh, we are the bad guy. We're, we're polluting the planet. We've got nuclear weapons we're using uh, against each other or threatening to or threatening to use against uh, uh, ETs in the heavens. And so people say, well, what, which scenario do you like? And I say, I like the good cop, bad cop scenario, because even if, uh, if scenario A, good guy, bad guy, is true, I still want to find out how to associate with the good guys. And if the uh, scenario is good cop, bad cop, and we're the bad guys, then we have to clean up our act, uh, stop polluting the planet, uh, stop using weapons against each other, and threatening to use against uh, ETs. I don't know if you've heard the name uh, Carol Rosen. She's a PhD who uh, has described her relationship with her mentor, uh, Werner von Braun, the uh, German rocket scientist. She claims that uh, he told her before his death that there were five uh, possible um, contests uh, or uh, stages of the U.S. involvement in building weapons. The first stage was against communist Russia. The second or the third, I don't remember which was, either rogue nations or terrorists. The fourth would be an uh, asteroid out of control. We'd need weapons to stop the asteroid. And then the fifth, final, would be the ET threat. So there have been many people, probably the ones who are holding on to the information about uh, uh, UFO propulsion and ETs, uh, who have thought of the ETs as a threat. And uh, coming out of World War II, that was probably the only way that our military people could view the reports of these crafts that would come and go so quickly that propeller-driven airplanes couldn't deal with them. Um, so now, 
if it's true that the cover-up has been going on this long, now the question is, how does the uncover work? And, of course, some people say, well, the cover-up and the uncover-up is going on at the same time. Movies are coming out about good, good ETs. Movies come out about it, bad ETs. And so we're covering up and uncovering at the same time. Be interesting to see with this world of, of electronic communication whether we're just about ready to uh, allow the uh, release of information indicating that for 60-plus years uh, there's been a cover-up of the ET presence. Yeah, that's I, I've heard that quote before, and, and I know that uh, late in his life, um, Douglas MacArthur stated... That you know, our next battle will be with with uh, be extraterrestrials. Battle, yeah. yeah, I don't know whether that was just uh, some sort of propaganda or whether that was very serious concern on the part of like the military planners. There's a. Uh, are you familiar with an author named Miriam Delicato? I don't think so. She wrote a book uh, that came out, I think, in 2007, and she's a Canadian woman. She must be in her early 40s now, and she had an experience. A profound UFO experience in uh, 1988 when she was in her early 20s. And she was driving on a road in rural Canada with other people in the car. And suddenly she was compelled to, um, I think that she wasn't driving. She was, she was, you know, told the driver to pull over and they felt like they were being followed by something. And they pulled the car over to the side of the road in this nighttime environment. And everyone in the car except her just kind of whoop, you know, was sort of switched off. They just kind of went mm-hmm. blank. Uh, mm-hmm. She was escorted out of the car by beautiful, tall, blonde-haired, uh, angelic uh, Nordic types, uh, ushered onto a flying saucer that was parked right next to the car. She was given like three hours of, of like almost a mission statement that, you know, what her role was going to be. She was then escorted back onto the car. They drove off. She had a, she had a, very clear set of memories uh she was extremely um shaken up and then she uh wrote her uh story down as best she could on a manual typewriter back then and then uh she was told that one day they would come back they would tell her now is the time to come forward and well that time was 2006 and then she wrote the book and then came forward and started going on the lecture circuit and her book is is uh, tells of of you know global changes and and uh, you know our role as citizens of the earth and and it has a very um, powerful optimistic spiritual message, but I was struck by the fact that she came forward very much in the very first moment of human history really where someone could come forward and communicate to the whole world through this tool called the internet uh, you know her. Her role has been played out completely on the, um, you know, through the internet, which wouldn't have been possible if you turned the clock back just a few years before. Yeah, that's an interesting point. <clears throat> I can remember in the '90s when I heard uh, Andrea Pucharic, the MD psychiatrist, uh, mm-hmm. yep. who helped to bring uh, Uri Geller over to the U.S., and he was Pucharic was involved in many uh, psychic. Uh, experiments and, and even had developed some uh, uh, machines to help in terms of uh, ESP and so forth. Anyway, he had um, described his uh, communications with what he calls Spectra, group of ETs, and, and he was told, he said, I'm no prophet, but I was told that 
2008-2009 would be difficult times on the planet uh, financially, economically. And I thought to myself, well, that's a long way away. Who cares about that? <laughs> now I look back and I go, wow, 2008-2009, the global economy uh, really uh, changed uh, the way we think of ourselves. We are now economically one planet, whether we like it or not. Very much so. And at the same time, um, even though the economy has certainly taken a hit, you know, there is this tool, the Internet, is, you know, people very inexpensive, you know, someone with a, with a laptop that costs, you know, a few hundred dollars can uh, do exactly what I'm doing, which is, you know, I'm going to post this interview within a few days. And then anyone in the world, someone can, you know, push a button in Kuala Lumpur and, and uh, in seconds later be listening to this exact same conversation, which, and they can, you know, they can store it, they can share it, they can log it. And that, um, to me, is, is fascinating. It, it's not only fascinating to me, but it's impossible. <laughs> I'll have to have somebody else uh, do that work for me. Well, maybe when I retire, I'll be able to buy a computer and get it get involved in the electronic communication world. And it's, um, yeah, even if you did need some help, it's surprisingly easy. It's just a, what's referred to as just a few mouse clicks away. I don't know if you can hear my cats <laughs> in the background there. there I, have, I just got a kitten, and my two cats are totally running around. They're running across the desk here a little bit, and they're, now they're attacking each other on the floor. They're very cute. So I just did the math a little bit here, and, and it seems like, if I'm doing the math correctly, you've been involved in UFO research for over 50 years now? Uh, probably so, actually. When I, <clears throat> I was involved uh, personally from the standpoint of, you know, my childhood experiences and my at a UFO sighting in University of Colorado Boulder when I was a college student in 1949. A buddy and I saw a flying saucer and we were upset by, by it. Then my wife and I had a sighting in 1956, after I came back from Germany, even the Army. Uh, but it wasn't until I finished uh, doctoral studies at the University of Missouri in 1961 that I began formal studies. I did a study of NICAP, National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena, members in 1961-62. Then I tried to do a study with my colleagues, other psychologists, and that failed. So then I thought to myself, okay, I'll... Uh, I'll work with the experts, uh, the people who claim to be on board. Uh, so in 1962 and three, I started a uh, survey. When I came to the University of Wyoming in 1964, I continued with the uh, survey. Uh, so uh, I've got hundreds and hundreds of people now who have participated in the survey, not only asking them about their vocational and educational background, but their psychic experiences and their UFO and their ET encounters. A lot of data, and over and over and over, shows the same thing we're talking about, that these people seem to feel uh, not only involved in strange experiences, but that it changes not only their perceptions of themselves, but their changed perception of uh, why they're here as a human. That, that actually, for, so if it was 1961, that's now it's it's we're three days into 2011, so that's 50 years. 50 and, years. Uh, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, well, well done, well done. If um, have you noticed any trends like in these these uh, years, like a trend meaning you know like like something that has yeah. changed mm -hmm. and and 
Yeah, the, uh, one researcher, I don't remember who it was, uh, uh, may have been Heineck, but I think it was uh, somebody early on had kind of an interesting uh, point of view. So first of all, it was okay to talk about um, lights in the sky, but it wasn't okay to talk about craft. And then it was okay to talk about craft in the sky, but it wasn't okay to talk about craft on the ground. Well, then it was okay to talk about craft on the ground, but it wasn't okay to talk about occupants. Well, then it was okay to talk about occupants, but it wasn't okay to talk about communication. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a, a silly but profound view that there has been a shift not only in the uh, topics, but in the way we regard discussing the topics among ourselves. I'm sure that you know, you've heard the same thing. That, uh, there's a, a book by a guy named Keller called A Total no Novice's uh, View of UFOs. And he points out that early on, military people would discuss their reports or their experiences, but they didn't. Sometimes they wouldn't make it into a report, didn't want to talk about it. Um, and the same way with the civilians. Now, the polls show that not only do the majority of U.S. people and also, uh, what's his name, um, he talks about exopolitics, uh, Stephen Bassett, mm -hmm. um, and others have done polls with uh, people who are international. Uh, and of course, they recognize that these are biased, the results are biased because people who go online are probably better educated uh, than the average person, but uh, not only in the U.S., but internationally, 85% of people will say, oh, yeah, they're flying saucers, and oh, yes, uh, there's been contact with uh, humans. And uh, a majority of people, not as high as the 80, will say that governments are withholding information. So if you look at the, the data, there are variations between uh, Democrats and Republicans, between college-educated people and uh, elementary school or high school-educated people, uh, differences between men and women. Um, according to uh, one... Uh, oh, I'm talking about a, a report from a guy named Scala. Uh, oh, Michael Scala. Scala, yeah, who I've met. Yeah, he's a, he's an Australian uh, that lives yeah, in Hawaii he, now. He was describing this international survey and showing that uh, baby boomers, uh, liberal, uh, white, uh, highly educated uh, men have the highest level. I can't remember what it is, 87 or 89 percent. Almost 9 out of 10 would say that flying saucers exist, that ETs are here, that uh, uh, governments are withholding information. Uh, but whether you take uh, the highest level or the lowest level, it's obvious that the uh, the average person knows that ETs exist. But the uh, the fearsome people, the people who are afraid, whether they're the military or governmental or the debunkers, uh, will cite this study and that study uh, or will uh, poo-poo that information or minimize it. Uh, what it says to me is that uh, Heineck was right when he said that the phenomenon continues on its own and that it rolls through society and moves from the lower to the higher levels uh, so that 
first of all, we got a lot of reports from silly people, you know, poor people or down-and-out people or uh, marginal persons as far as society is concerned. Then we started getting more middle-class reports. Uh, now we're getting upper-class reports, whether they're from uh, people in uh, high-level uh, uh, security or military or governmental circles. I haven't read, I've ordered a copy of uh, Ms. Kane's uh, book on UFOs and generals and military officers and so on. So here are high-level people who are now talking. So to me, the trend has been not from the top down, uh, but from the bottom up. Now I think that the uh, higher levels of religious leaders and military leaders and governmental leaders are going through their struggle about when do they uh, acknowledge what they already know. And it's interesting, and, I, and I'm very uh, hesitant to point a finger at 2012. But if you know, if I had a great big um, chalkboard mm -hmm. and, and was you know drawing these <laughs> trends out, you know, it's like okay, here's right. the Keynes book comes out, and here's the internet, and here's this mm -hmm. study of how many people believe, and and uh, in, in another thing that's also happening on the internet, which is very interesting is uh, people have, everyone has a video camera now, you know, every, you know, to take pictures right. of it. And oftentimes mm -hmm. video cameras are even included on their uh, cell phones. There's a video camera hooked right up into the cell phone. And, uh, and mm -hmm. people and on the internet, uh, logged by the thousands, are uh, yes. UFO video uh, footage. Isn't that intriguing? It's almost as, uh, what were those two brothers involved in psychedelic, drug research. Oh, oh, um, Terrence McKenna and, and his brother Dennis. Yeah, uh, it seems to me if I am uh, describing accurately that uh, Terrence had done a study of the level of information, the level of knowledge that uh, humanity is going through, and then it would take 25 years for a cycle, and then it would take 15 years, and then it would take 10, and so, so on. And he concluded that... Uh, at the rate we were going, I think that was a study that was done in the 60s, that it would culminate in a shift in about 2012. Well, then here's the Mayan calendar. Many people have written about the shift of consciousness. Now, of course, some people talk about the end of the world, uh, but it's the end of the calendar as far as the Mayans were concerned. A guy named Drunvalo Melchizedek uh, says that the Mayan elders uh, talk with him. Uh, there's a, you know, all kinds of cycles. You know, there's a 2,500-year cycle, there's a 5,000-year cycle, 26,000-year cycle. Some people even talk about a 250,000-year cycle. Uh, I don't really understand that, but it has to do with the galactic uh, shifts. But uh, according to Melchizedek, he was told that there is a shift from the uh, center of, uh, of spiritual energy in uh, India and Tibet, 11,000 year cycle, moving from India and Tibet over to South America, uh, Peru and, and Chile. Uh, he was also told, he said, that um, the shift of energy for humanity is from masculine energy to feminine energy. If that's true, then uh, we can see that the changes are already taking place. Uh, Brazil, uh, first female president, a lot of uh, world leaders uh, now are coming into uh, 
limelight who are uh, female leaders, they, they seem to be not only as, as, as intelligent and hardworking as men, but they seem to be more compassionate. So it seems as if there's going to be less uh, emphasis upon weapons and violence and more emphasis upon uh, cooperation and compassion. Well, if, if this trend uh, continues politically at the U.S. and uh, international level, and if it's connected with the ET level, then what we are seeing is uh, a gradual uh, civilizing of humanity. Uh, even a book by Robert Hastings on UFOs and nukes, uh, he argues that there have been a lot of military people who have described uh, uh, flying saucers over uh, nuclear missile bases, and suddenly the power goes down, the missiles are incapacitated for a few minutes, and then the craft goes away, and then the power is restored. And uh, on the surface, it would seem that this is a demonstration that you guys don't know what you're doing with these nuclear weapons, and we can shut them down. And and hearing that news, I just remember like thinking like that's the greatest thing ever, you know, like you know <laughs> that, that like really they could just hover over and shut our nuclear bombs down, like that's that's gives me hope in the future. Gives you hope. <laughs> yeah. One and, time I remember when I was uh, came to the University of Wyoming in 1964, I uh, brought with me my interest in uh, UFO research and. Uh, had some slides that I'd gotten from Jim and Coral Lorenzen of APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization out of Tucson. And so I think it was in 67 or 68, uh, I was giving a talk uh, on campus to a group of women. These were wives of officers, uh, uh, officers at the uh, Missile Air Force Base in uh, Cheyenne, 50 miles away from Laramie. Anyway, after I showed the slides and gave a talk, and... Uh, they asked questions about the photos and UFO research. Well, I said, I have a question for you ladies. I said, uh, does anybody know any information about a report of a flying saucer over the Cheyenne missile base? And uh, blah, 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 and so forth. They looked at each other and said, we're not supposed to talk about that. And I said, well, I'm not trying to get anybody in any trouble, so if there's no information about what happened three or four years ago, that's okay. They looked at each other and they said, oh, we thought you meant two weeks ago. <laughs> and I laughed. I said, oh, that's different information. Now I have the knowledge that there is two that happened. According to Robert Hastings, uh, that's what other people uh, who were previous uh, military people had reported. So, so there's a lot of information uh, through a lot of different circles uh, from a lot of different people that the uh, cover-up has been going on uh, for 60-some years, you know, since 1947. But also information that would suggest that it's more and more difficult for the cover-up to continue. So uh, I don't know if you know Scott Jones. You know, uh, he's a Ph.D. Uh, political scientist, also a Navy pilot and Navy intelligence, but uh, C.B. Scott Jones... Uh, has a, um, a little flyer that uh, he's developed out of his group uh, peace room in Texas. And the flyer is directed toward academic people, military people, religious uh, leaders, others, encouraging them to uh, learn and to share information because 
it would appear that there are two scenarios as far as uh, eventual release. One scenario is that the ETs are a threat. They're mean, they're nasty. We've got to uh, band together and uh, galvanize the planet against them. Or the other scenario is that they're peaceful and they're helping us to learn to become peaceful. And, of course, uh, he's on the side of the peacemakers, and I like that view much better than the uh, let's build bombs and let's get ready to bomb the ETs. Yeah, are you familiar with a, a book by Richard Dolan called A.D.? The subtitle is After Disclosure? I've ordered a copy. I'm looking forward to reading it. I've read a little review about it. Yeah, yeah, I read it, and, and uh, ah, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a very um, pragmatic look at you know what actually it might mean after disclosure uh-huh. like what what does yeah. it mean for you know the economy to the human psyche to mm-hmm. religion to oh just society the societal influence that that'll have and um you know it's any form of speculation is murky and you're you're it's just mere guesswork in a way but they they uh, richard dolan and his co-author named bryce zabel um tackled the subject and yeah I, I find it very interesting the thing that that strikes me now i've been talking to a lot of people and one of the things that shows up over and over and over again with people who have this experience, you know, there's a few key things that show up. And one of them is they'll say, oh, I have an enhanced psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that shows up is, uh, which not as, well, it's very common. And it's it, and this is where they'll say that they've begun channeling. And right. and mm-hmm. I find that the, the channeling thing is so, is dismissed with such contempt in among the research community that uh you know that, <laughs> until, that it's, they, until they start experiencing it then, then they ex- won't dismiss it <laughs> exactly so i i don't know quite what this means like disclosure you know in a lot of people's minds means uh the you know the president will sit in a podium and say like well you know that although the et the et phenomenon is real and mm-hmm. um but you know i think that there's going to be a much deeper thing i think they're going to be forced into saying that and they're going to have to be some sort of world event that makes it impossible to deny uh in order for them to to come clean i think uh and i'm very cautious of what i believe as far as i've heard a lot of uh you know heavy-handed conspiracy theories where um you know there's like we have you know et craft in in hangars in in new mexico but uh you know i'm not sure what the reality is there and i, well, I I'm not really interested in trying to pursue that but what i think it might be is much less of a nuts and bolts uh, change in humanity, but what if uh, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, the the citizens of the world, you know, everyone wakes up one morning with a heightened sense of of ESP. Uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, what, what, uh, what, mm-hmm. what, what's Sheldon Knight argues? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and 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 what if it's something different than just something simple that you know, or we all end up channeling, or you know, we end up like you know, no no longer needing to talk because we can speak telepathically. Uh, you know, I don't, you know, all these things are reported in the UFO phenomena. And, um, you know, I just think that the potential influence would be profound. And oftentimes the people that I talk to that channel or that have psychic influence, they didn't arrive there through, you know, years of meditation on a mountaintop in Tibet. They just sort of woke up one morning and had it. Does, you know you know what I'm yeah. saying? We're, we're, who knows? Yeah, it's, the, inter- it's interesting to uh, take your comments about the electronic communication uh, now there are more cell phones or <clears throat> now there are more video cameras more uh, uh, internet uh, information and then uh, place alongside that the concept of uh, what some people are arguing Sheldon Neidl in his uh, book 
you're becoming a galactic human being. Uh, and uh, others who channel information. Um, let's see, what's her name? The EDD out of New Mexico, uh, who's channeled information for many years. I don't think of her name at the moment. Uh, who argue that uh, the Pleiadians, the Syrians, the others uh, are helping us uh, not only uh, get more aware of the ET presence, but also a higher level of consciousness. Uh, many people with whom I work feel that uh, levels of energy are coming into the planet. Uh, a guy named um, Kevon. K-E-V-O-N, he has an article in the Star Beacon about uh, shift, how shift happens. Um, and he argues that NASA people are aware of uh, energy coming into the solar system from galactic sources. And this is not only heating up the planet Earth, but Mars and Venus, uh, <clears throat> so that whether you call it global warming or whether you call it solar system warming or galactic warming is happening, uh, if there are f more energies coming into the planet and we're feeling them, then it may be that both the technical communication is enhanced and the personal psychic communication is enhanced. Uh, then uh, it'll make no difference whether people uh, believe or don't believe in ETs. It'll be experienced both uh, left brain, right brain, both head and heart, both technical communication and uh, psychical information. Yeehaw! Ah, that, that would be an exciting event if that happens in the next few years. Yeah, and, and it's it's impossible to know. I mean, trying to look into the future is there, a lot of people have made uh, predictions that have not turned out to be true. But, um, and this is me coming not from, uh, you know, intellectually, I think that's absurd, right? That's the dumbest thing in the world. You know, you try to wrap your mind around that intellectually, and you just, it's so easy just to like, oh, let's put that in the wastebasket because that's ridiculous. But um, on a gut level, it has the ring of truth to it in a way. Right, um, right. And I can't defend that or, or you know, or, or, or make an argument for or against that, but on, on just the... The feeling in my gut, it says that, you know, like, that is a very real possibility. And, and that the disclosure event that, uh, you know, people like Stephen Bassett are so eager to herald in may be significant. Sorry, the, can, did you hear that in the background? Yeah. Is that... Yeah, the, the kittens are, the kitten is up on top of the refrigerator and just knocked a plastic <laughs> bowl onto the floor. So, um, Yeehaw. So, I, thought it was so... an interest... I thought it was an interesting timing that you're talking about something unusual might happen and this yeah the little bundle of energy that's that uh, you know once again the kitten is is if nothing else is like an absurd bundle of energy uh you know sort of heralds in the, the sound effect but um uh, i uh, want to make a comment about a sociological phenomenon you know uh, if you look at humans and our willingness to predict uh, or to uh, uh to assume certain things, it can be a naughty or nasty thing. Like uh, people uh, say, "Uh oh, the bank is losing uh, money. I better get my money out," and so there'll be a run on the bank, and, and everybody loses. Or it might be a positive thing, like pay it forward, and everybody says, "Oh, uh, you help me, I'll help somebody else." Um, if we look at just just from a sociological phenomenon, if the majority of people 
are anticipating something about to happen, then uh, the anticipation may help drive that. Just like at the uh, psychological level, what we pay attention to uh, is uh, uh, where we're directing our energy, and so our energy moves into that. Just like a person could say, uh-oh, I think something bad is going to happen. I think something bad is going to happen. Well, they can keep looking for it, and pretty soon they find a bad thing. Or they can look for a good thing. And, and you know, that old story about the kid at Christmas uh, had a pile of horse shit, and, uh, and he was uh, laughing, and the other kid says, what are you laughing about? He says, there must be a pony in here somewhere. Well, we may be thought of as silly, those of us who uh, claim that we've had ET experiences, and that we're looking forward to a further interaction with extraterrestrials. But if more and more people have the experience and more and more people anticipate it, then it's going to happen. You know, it might not happen, but if more and more people are looking into it or more and more people are treating it as a reality, it might change the human consciousness in a way that, yeah. that we can hardly predict. You know, I, I, you know, who knows? I mean, if like, flying saucers are going to like you know land on the white house lawn in the next two years um you know i i uh that's very they tried that in 1952 tried to get over the white house but uh it was just a, a weather inversion <laughs> so we didn't we didn't uh, play the game the way we might have played it in 1952 and potentially in 1952 it, you know humanity may not have been ready you know you know every fear that's that they I... That's what Eisenhower supposedly said. You know, he was supposedly going to a dentist, and uh, yet the people who were there said that he went to what's now called Edwards Air Force Base. I don't know what it was then, Morocco or whatever, uh, and that he met with extraterrestrials and uh, then decided that uh, we just weren't ready, and so it would take a while. And there may have been wisdom in that, you know. So, uh, and, so yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I just, I just try to look at our, you know, who knows? Who knows? You can't, you can't change history, and we can oh. change our perception of history. That's the one thing that we can change. We yes, can we, change can change our our, we can change our history. Yeah, or use we history as a tool to to better, you know, mold our lives now. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why I say it's going to happen. Because uh, humanity is already in contact with ETs. Humanity has been in contact with ETs since our inception. The biblical stories uh, show the pyramids, the the sculptures, the uh, tablets, the Sitchin's work. All of this shows that whether people think of them as angels or devils, that uh, we've been in contact. And according to the Sitchin story, the... Nin Hartsug was the female geneticist. Uh, there were two brothers, Inki and Enlil. Uh, the the father, or the, the the great god of all, Anu, had two sons. One of them uh, liked humans, and one of them did not. And so we have a history of uh, God-loving and God-fearing. And uh, some people would rather fear God, and some would rather love God. Uh, but either way, we've had a history, uh, humankind, of... Uh, not only uh, being the uh, the outcome of the female geneticist experiments between Homo erectus and their genes, so we're the missing link. That evidence is very persuasive archaeologically. If people come from the Bible, or if they come from the uh, science 
it doesn't matter. Either way, uh, we've been in communication with ETs for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So to say that we won't be in communication with ETs in the future, to me, is a, is a rather doubtful assumption. I think we're already, uh, already, uh, we are ready for public communication, but we certainly are engaged in private communication. Yeah, and I think that the um, you told the story about you know uh, Heineck uh, discussing you know at first you know all we could see was you know write reports about little lights in the sky, but we wouldn't <laughs> yeah. talk about structured craft and, and and you just follow that train all the way up to where it was you know uh, then you wouldn't talk about communication and I and I sense that yeah. um, quite honestly <laughs> there were smart people you know looking into the subject and they simply couldn't like their minds wouldn't allow themselves to you know jump that those few steps forward and and think that there was potential for communication with that little light in the sky that was just that wouldn't have fit into their yeah. mindset and i and well, i, I wanted, oh go on go ahead I, I wanted to tell a story about ann eller do you know ann eller i've met ann eller oh all right well uh, if you've seen her book dragon in the sky she tells an interesting story i think it's uh, page 78 where uh, uh, she said that when she was secretary to J. Allen Hynek, one day she was uh, straightening up the office and a book uh, on a shelf had an envelope. The envelope fell out and it was unopened. Uh, I think she was writing this may have happened in the 80s. Uh, anyway, the envelope was uh, postmarked the 50s and, and yet it hadn't been opened, so she opened it. And uh, according to her story, uh, there was uh, an Ohio University uh, um, professor of astronomy who said, yep, uh, we've, we've found a signal comes from uh, Venus. In other words, talking about an intelligent signal from intelligent species. And uh, Heineck hadn't opened it because uh, she knew later that he already knew what the envelope contained. And when she told him she had opened it, he said nothing, but he got the distinct view that she wasn't supposed to pry. <laughs> so if that story is true, and I trust uh, Anne, then that means that uh, Alan Hynek knew uh, that uh, what other astronomers know, that is that there are signals from intelligent civilizations. But apparently... Uh, whoever's in charge of that information that believes that the main public isn't ready for it. It'd be interesting to find out uh, when we are ready for it. Yeah, and, and if you, you know, I'm just thinking of, of uh, you know, in the 1950s, uh, a smart scientist wouldn't have even considered that there was a potential for communication. And I, and I think that um, that little continuum, you know, doesn't end with communication. Something, I mean, it keeps on stretching off. That the line in that continuum where I and I and I I don't even know what it means like some sort of you know uh, telepathic communion with with their you know grand knowledge you know or something like that I don't know what the next step is you know are we simply downloaded with information the same way that you know like a person in a near death experience has a life review and then suddenly has a grand knowledge of everything um, it, it, I think that continuum will continue on. And it would be naive to say that, you know, that continuum just ends with, with uh, something like communication. Yeah, uh, I, I suppose that there are a wide variety of responses, just like if uh, a kid in high school 
found out that he could get a scholarship uh, or she could go to a college nearby as compared to going back working on the farm, a whole bunch of things open up. It's uh, it's the, along that line I've tried to, for years, as you know, to talk about adductions instead of abductions, but <laughs> I haven't been successful. Most people want to say, well, I was abducted by ETs. Uh, but the word abduct means to take away. The word adduct means taken toward. Um, so if, uh, if we picture ourselves as uh, being taken out of our uh, room or out of our car, up into a flying saucer and then given a tour of the planets or a tour of the spacecraft, then shown all kinds of symbols and information. Uh, you know, the the tour is something different than just being taken away and put on a table and probed. Many people uh, describe, you know, their fear uh, of that. One woman I worked with uh, after hypnosis uh, where she felt like she was on a craft, felt like she was on a table and being probed her body and checked out. When she came back to a normal state, she had fright in her eyes and said, Leo, do you think they're going to come and take me away? I said, I don't think you'll be that lucky. I said, I think you'll have to stay and work like the rest of us. And so uh, same way with a guy asked me, he said, is this war? And I said, no, it's worse. He said, worse? I said, yeah, it's education. Uh, I think that the possibilities increase uh, for humans, not only individually, but as a species, uh, rather than uh, decrease. Uh, I think that being opened up to many, many civilizations increases the possible knowledge about science, about spirituality, and psychology, sociology, rather than constrict us. I think we'll, we'll be overwhelmed by the possibilities. And I think that the people who, who uh, are immersed in the, in the one-on-one contact are, are already in that realm. Yeah, you know? right. Uh, they get overwhelmed. Uh, but then after a while, they start dealing with it, and uh, whether they channel or whether they uh, talk. And, uh, you know, uh, guys like Stan Romanek, who uh, write a book about being a messenger. At first, uh, he wasn't thinking of himself as a messenger. And so same way with people who go through uh, the experience over and over, uh, of being taken away, well, after a while, they realize that uh, whether it's their genes that are being checked out for hybrid children or whether it's their uh, ESP abilities that are being checked out or whether it's because they came from a long line of people from a particular planet, <clears throat> we won't know answers to those kind of questions for a while. But um, there seem to be at least three groups of people with whom I've worked, the environmentalists, the people who, after their ET experiences, start worrying more about the planet and about the species that are dying. And so they want to go green. Then there's a group of people who uh, are survivalists, and they don't know whether they're fighting against ETs or fighting against our own human uh, impulse to, uh, to war. And then the people who feel like they're guides or teachers or nurses or... Uh, persons who are here to help other people uh, but it's it's like there's a lot of different jobs and a lot of different tasks and uh, to me it's very very exciting uh, about the possibilities 
Yeah, very much so. Hey, I've sat in the UFO support group circles, and uh, mostly just in Laughlin, and that's part of the reason I go down to Laughlin each year. Um, and I've been there for three years in a row now, and I plan going back again. It's actually now going to be in um, uh, outside of uh, oh, yeah. Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and this is strictly anecdotal. I, there's no, you know, there's no. I haven't collected any data, and but uh, my my impression is that about 60% of the people tell a story of uh, communing with, um, you know, loving, benevolent beings. And then uh, about 40% of the people tell pretty darn terrifying stories of of, mm. being, of interacting with, uh, you know, evil, malevolent doctors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, so I don't know quite what that means. Um, and I trust both of them. They both seem totally earnest uh i don't i don't try to put weight on one more than the other and i'm in a way i'm not really a researcher in that sense you know i'm not sure what my title would be i feel like i'm just a i'm just a someone who who enjoys or not maybe enjoys is the wrong term feels drawn to to confront these people and sit with them and have a heart-to-heart conversation and um uh so i'm i'm at it's it's very difficult for me to paint a picture what the big picture might mean that's being a good reporter. <clears throat> now, I got puzzled about that, and I'm still puzzled about it, although uh, when we started in 1980, a UFO conference, a Rocky Mountain UFO conference at the University of Wyoming, uh, we got the same kind of reports, you know, some people who had marks on their body, the black light, and then people who were talking about hybrid children. Uh, some people were frightened by it. Some people were pleased by it. <laughs> One woman, uh, she was asked the uh, by people in the audience during the uh, you know, discussion time. She says, you, th- you think you have hybrid children? She said, yes. Aren't you, doesn't it bother you? No. She said, if I can contribute to the cause, fine. So different people have different responses. Uh, my own uh, biased observation is that people who have a uh, view of reincarnation uh, seem to have the good experiences. People who uh, don't want to believe in reincarnation or haven't thought about what they might have been in other lifetimes seem to be more likely to have the negative influences. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if this is a, a good uh, description of the people I've worked with or not, but uh, what I find is that people who see themselves as having been ETs and having chosen to come here to help, they're the ones who... Uh, seem to be uh, compassionate and um, cooperative. Uh, one woman, uh, she said she was being pushed around by what she perceived as uh, obnoxious uh, uh, grays. She said, stop it, stop it. And they stopped. And she said, I want to talk to somebody else. And they moved off and got brought somebody back. So uh, to me, it's like the... Uh, view the the difference between the ranchers and the cowboys and the the cattle uh, <clears throat> don't know what they're why they're being branded and maybe it's for a evil purpose or maybe it's for a good purpose and or what was his name back in the 60s he had that view that the higher forces were the shepherds humans were the sheep and then the little grays were the sheep dogs and so if we follow the higher forces all is well but if we don't, then the little sheepdogs come after us and nip our heels, and it hurts. 
Well, some people said to me, well, Leo, the sheep may be taken off to the slaughter. And I said, well, if we're going to slaughter, well, I hope we'll dance. Uh, so to me, we don't know the end result of our connection with ETs. But I do know this, that when people shape up and are more uh, peaceful and more uh, more meditative and uh, more aware of uh, compassion, cooperation, then that's the way they're treated. You... Um when we, I was working on a documentary going back a couple of years ago, and, and I have uh, mm-hmm. footage with you and I discussing similar topics. I mean, almost uh, is what we're talking about right now. And yeah. um, you attempted to do a hypnotic regression, and I and I I must admit that I was quite nervous at the time. It was early on in the film production and having a camera crew in the room, and 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 then at the same time you telling me relax, relax. It was. It was <laughs> yeah. Relax. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh at the end of the s- attempted hypnosis session you uh channeled uh as uh, i think that would be the way to say it you sort of uh tapped into something mm. that was that was uh yeah, yeah uh, i talked to my guides and they talked through me um and that's very interesting that you you play that down i very rarely i've listened to a lot of audio interviews with you and i've seen a lot of uh online video things and uh, uh, I own some uh, videos of you giving presentations and um, I don't often hear you mention that. Yeah, uh, it's not so much me playing it down as the guides playing it down. I'm willing to do it. I, one time I gave a talk uh, to uh, a group of 500 people in, in Denver and, and uh, then I asked if anybody wanted to volunteer do a past life reading and, and uh, someone participated and it seemed to go okay afterwards a guy came up with a with a cane one hand leaning on the arm of somebody else he was visually blind but he said he was uh, clairvoyant and he could uh, he could tell me what my guides looked like and I said well I would like to know because I would ask them who are you guys and what's your titles and blah 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 and they said well it's not important it's, our work is important but not our you know who we are well, he described a guy on my left as a Native American who was moving my hands, <clears throat> a guy on my right who was uh, a Tibetan or Chinese monk in an orange robe, choosing the words, and then a blue light coming down from ET sources, which was uh, bringing the information. Uh, since that time, I've been told that a female guide has been added to the group who does healing. And then, uh, oh, four or five months ago, I was told that we moved up to another level so that we're not only talking to individuals about their lives and, and their missions, their tasks, but also uh, uh, more information about groups and humanity. So if that's true, then um, uh, I'm getting to the point where uh, well, a guy recently has been videotaping some sessions. And just one example, we asked the question, what's going to happen in 2011? And my guide said three things which were interesting. Two made sense to me. The third doesn't. Uh, The two things that made sense, they said, well, in the news, in and out of the news, there'll be more information about earth changes in 2011. In and out of the news will be more information about uh, global economy and the shifts and changes there. The third thing, there will be a lessening of violence. And I thought to myself, wow. I hope that that's true, but I w- I'm very skeptical about whether that will happen or not because we humans seem to be so violent, especially these days between religious 
uh, you know, my, my God is more loving than yours, so I'll prove it to you by shooting you. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, it's it, during our session, you know, I, I, um, I was, I was, uh, you know, the initial looking into this was very, um, I was filled with anxiety. I mean, it was a hard, hard thing mm. to look into this. At the same time, to be involved in a documentary where I was expected to be as honest as I could be, which I tried to be. Um, and that was like the only way I could proceed was like, well, I can't like, we worked on the documentary for about a year. Everyone involved in the documentary still likes the idea. The the, the two filmmakers that I was working with have um, since uh, sold a feature film. So they're they're uh, oh, busy good. right now, um, which is great. It's very very rewarding for them. But uh, when you when when the sort of hypnosis session didn't work, uh, you um, asked why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you you said um, that uh, the time wasn't right. You you actually said I went into a different. This is talking about an event that took place in 1974. Uh, that was a missing time event. As I was a 12 year old boy walking home from a high school football game, and you said um, that I. Walked through a doorway into another dimension, and that uh, the time isn't right for me to know all the details. But there will come a day when the time will be right, and uh, and I'm doing that from memory. I haven't looked at the footage recently, but um, and and I I don't I I can't know if that's true. But it was actually very reassuring for me to hear that. Yeah, and I remember. uh, I don't know whether it came from my guides or whether it was just my own speculation that when you finished your chore or your mission, your task, your duty, your hero's journey, then uh, that information be revealed to you. Uh, because that's been true for so many people for with whom I've worked. Some people go into trance easily and they remember their experience. Other people, uh, they don't, and they feel like they're withheld from that uh, information until they uh, finish their mission or task. And then, then it's revealed to them, just like with me. Uh, I sort of knew that something unusual had happened to me when I was 10 years old, uh, but I didn't remember consciously until I was 50. After I started working with other people, then it was okay for me to know about my own experience. I'm actually quite nervous about trying to be hypnotized. Uh, I've, it's one of the things that, that in, I wanted to do uh, as just as sort of a, a little experiment in a way was to go through and get hypnotized by various people. I was actually very curious whether whether mm-hmm. the uh, the information that came out would be different. Um, and right. <laughs> uh, uh, you know that that struck me as very like, well, you know, what happens if you get hypnotized by Bud Hopkins and then get hypnotized by Barbara Lamb? Mm-hmm. You know, what's what's going to come right. out? Is it going to be different? You would know, you get different. Would you get a different scenario? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I thought that would be a, that was a very worthy concept. That was a very worthy idea to try to. Uh, to try to um, dig in that that those you know go into those waters, I guess. I did attempt it, and then I, at some point I just felt like I, no one could put me under. Uh, Bud Hopkins put me under for a little while, and it's, it's very difficult. I mean, from the it's I don't know it's so murky trying to describe what it's like to be hypnotized. But a few things, a very few small details came up, um, up with some experiences. And it was, in a funny way, it was it was details that I already knew, except just almost felt too embarrassed to say, you know, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, from, from my biased point of view, it's not the hypnotist who puts the uh, participant under, it's the participant who goes uh, at a different level or a different stage of, uh, of consciousness. You see what I'm saying? Very <clears throat> like much so. Saying, it, it's like saying, uh, <clears throat> I went to work for somebody, but he couldn't get me to work. <laughs> well, and 
Well, or I went to a teacher, and the teacher didn't teach me anything. Uh, <clears throat> there's teaching and there's learning. And um, if we look at it from, this, from the male uh, patriarchal attitude, the hypnotist is the important person, the teacher is the important person, the uh, leader is the important person. But if we look at it from the standpoint of, uh, of interaction between humans, it's the uh, it's the student, it's the pupil, uh, it's the participant who's important, and the coach can't uh, force a player to be a good athlete. The coach can only coach the player to become a better athlete. So it comes within her or within him. In the same way with the uh, the participant in hypnosis, it's the participant who decides what happens. Yeah, and and I and I'm not sure what the future will bring for me, but presently, um, you know, my gut is telling me, you know, I like, don't bother to get hypnotized. Uh, yeah, and I know yeah. there's people already, out there. You already know. <laughs> you already know what happened, and you're already doing your mission. You're on it. Yeehaw. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever the whatever this mission is, and, and I guess it's it's happening right now. If it's so. Um, uh, the thing that comes up, and I've had channeled sessions, and I've spoken with psychics, and I've spoken. The thing that. Um, shows up as far as my and, and it, it's absurd sometimes the way it it it, uh, it comes off i don't want to say that i was like a psychic junkie where i was like you know going to these uh psychics and channels in a in a in some sort of needy fashion but i definitely wanted uh insight and i and i'm skeptical yeah. enough to to uh to just take the information in a way that i don't you know it's not like i'm going to um uh you know heed their words to the point where it where it um changes my yeah, but you've investigated and that's that's good you've, you've you've done an outstanding job of investigating your own experience yeah and and it's interesting because i i um you know i met someone at a conference and they turned to me and say so what brings you to the conference and i said well i'm doing some research and they said oh that's interesting what are you researching and i actually had to make i had to think for a second I was like oh what am i researching and i said well you know actually i guess i'm researching myself which was an honest so answer and the conclusion that comes up, and, and this has been this has been told outright to me by by psychics, as well as uh, it's sort of emerged from my gut, as well as that it's been the the ongoing uh, narrative that's come out. But this, through this online writing that I've been doing, people have contacted me, and they have said, um, you know, it was you know I read your article. I listened to your audio interview. I found it very beneficial. It gave me peace of mm. mind. Uh, I found solace mm. in it, and uh, and part of that I think comes from the fact that I I am um, I'm not I'm not attempting to be preachy or or um mm. and and I'm genuinely uh, skeptical. And the the thing that I'm skeptical of more than anything is my own set of experiences. You know, I'm very very mm -hmm. quick to believe and listen to other people and 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 take in and. And uh, mm -hmm. and trust them. And the the one person that that uh, that I'm most skeptical of is myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's marvelous. Not only from a philosophical standpoint, but from a personal uh, humility standpoint, <clears throat> you uh, you have uh, benefited many many people by not only uh, listening to their experiences, but comparing your own experience. Uh, with that model, uh, so to me, you are uh, a good example of the hero. The journey that you're on is uh, helping others to learn as they see you learn about yourself. Yahoo! Yeah, and I'm very, I'm very cautious to, to you know the hero's journey has such a grand. Uh, uh, um 
sort of underlying message to it. You know, I'm sort of I'm very cautious mm-hmm. to shy away. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can say is that my I've tried to be as honest as I can be. There's a few stories that I haven't shared, and mostly because they just they they um, deal with other people, and those people have requested to be uh, anonymous. Right. So there's a few stories yeah. I haven't shared, um, and uh, and until I get permission from them, I won't. But um, for the most part, I've been very uh, open about my own set of experiences, which yeah. compared to other people are very minimal. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that have have incredibly intense, you know, vivid experiences, and I don't have that. I, I have, you know, what seem to be to me fleeting experiences that create a puzzle piece, and and it's only when I step back and look at the way these these puzzle pieces fit together, um, and there's obviously holes in the puzzle still. It paints a picture where I say, like, oh, there is definitely something going on. And, and it's very difficult for me to say more than that. You know, I can't say that, you know, like, uh, I'm very hesitant to say that I'm a UFO abductee because I don't have that direct experience or those direct memories. But I can say with, with uh, unequivocally, I can say that I am experiencing something and that something tends to be profound. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I like... Your style, as well as your ongoing uh, description of what you're doing, you are honestly examining yourself and you are sharing uh, what you uh, learn uh, by listening to other people and comparing it. So to me, it's what a good reporter does. A good reporter doesn't just uh, check one or two sources, checks many sources, and... uh, and not only uh, in terms of testimony, but also in terms of levels of testimony. So, uh, to me, that's what you do when you talk with a variety of people, whether they are experiencers in the sense of uh, onboard ET encounters, or whether they are researchers. Uh, you uh, you compare and contrast uh, a variety of sources and keep checking it back within yourself and you use yourself as a guinea pig as well as the reporter so i'm i'm impressed i i wish you uh, i i commend you on what you're doing well thanks for saying that and and it's interesting because i don't consider myself a reporter that because a reporter you know it needs to be objective right you know they need to and i and i don't feel like i'm being objective i feel like i'm being very (laughs) subjective i I feel like so instead of Mm -hmm. you know i've actually gone to try to take ufo reports you know like there was a there was actually a woman that you put me in touch with who lives nearby and i went to her house and i and uh um uh you know she sort of pointed at the spot in the yard where she said this you know this this uh, sort of very angelic blonde being sort of appeared out of nowhere and and um and and if i was an objective reporter i would have you know uh mm. i don't know i would have but instead what i did is i had like a like a like a heart to heart with this woman um yeah. and and really uh you know it was emotional it wasn't a, it wasn't a, I, I wasn't being pragmatic at all i was completely immersing myself in the in the uh the emotions and the um the, the the story itself was so um and there's a term i use i guess seductive you know there's something really seductive about this story it's it's uh, um it, i think as as we loved you know, all throughout history, we loved campfire stories, and I think that campfire stories have their own logic. You know, they're sort of spooky, they're sort yeah. of mysterious, mm-hmm. and they they're seductive, and they 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 drag the listener in. And um, mm-hmm. and I feel like the modern UFO story is is a is a, is a new version of the campfire story. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. 
I like that. Are you familiar with the studies of Robert Rosenthal? He was a psychologist at the University of North Dakota when I was there, and he went on to California. But he's done studies of what's called uh, 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 experimental bias. And uh, he finds uh, several things that are interesting. I'll just summarize them briefly. He finds that everybody's biased, and he finds that uh, the experimenter, who is warm and uh, uh, compassionate, gets more information than the cold, logical experimenter. Uh, so the question is, uh, which is better? Is it better to be cold and logical and objective and get less information, or is it better to be warm and compassionate and friendly and get more information? Uh, what I'm claiming is that um, whether you call yourself a reporter or an observer or a participant or a, whatever you want to call yourself, that in my opinion you're using the uh, approach that not only uh, gets you more information as a reporter or a researcher or as an observer, but you also help the person uh, who is sharing that information, okay? Uh, so that the old view, the Newtonian worldview of physics uh, uh, is out. The new view of uh, quantum physics is in. And the new view means that uh, we don't have to be cold and logical and rational uh, in order to be good scientists or to be good participants. In fact, the new uh, view of science and the old view of mythicism are the same, that we are participants in a world that is focused more on energy and consciousness and less on matter. And when we recognize that, in my opinion, we become better humans, and in my opinion, we move ourselves toward being better uh, participants in a world with extraterrestrial civilizations. So I, I like your style. Oh, thank you so much. And and I feel like um, oh, I'm a, not a good interviewer, but I feel like I'm a good conversationalist. And and I that same, that always rings true. If ever I try model. to do an interview, it falls same. apart. And I mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, the same model that with you enjoy the conversation rather than being a structured interviewer which once more goes back to the objective, uh, let's get this information coldly and logically and scientifically. Uh, but the trouble is uh, that style doesn't get as much information. Yeah, very much so. Hey, we've been at it for uh, an hour and 40 minutes, and uh, this uh, this is going great, and I, and I feel like we could wrap it up right now and it would be good, but I, I would love That's to just ask to you a couple, I would love to share one experience with you that I have never told you before that just happened recently, and I would love oh, to get okay. your input on it. So what I would love to do is just share an experience uh, that happened in May of this year, kind of shook me up a little bit, um, and uh, I would just, if you want to play UFO researcher and uh, okay. give me your insights, and, and I will also say do not be shy about... Um, you know, um, getting information from your source guides. Okay. And I'll tell you that it didn't happen in this year. It happened last year. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. That's right. So it happened It was. Uh, it happened in, in uh, 2010. So. Okay. Um, I was traveling with a friend of mine. Her name is Natasha, and I met her at a UFO conference, and she has her own set of uh, experiences. Um that that uh, certainly point to some sort of uh, UFO contact. 
uh, though she she like me doesn't have any memories, but she does have a. Mm. I consider her uh, psychic. She has a very strong sense of uh, psychic skills. She's very dedicated to the subject, and um, it's also very new to her. She has only been looking into it over the last few years. Mm-hmm. We befriended each other and became quite close, and we'd been talking a lot um, back and forth where her home is in Germany. And she came at first. She came to uh, we uh, spent time at a, the UFO conference in Laughlin, and then she came back in May, and we went down to the Four Corners area of uh, where Utah and Colorado uh, and Arizona all all bump together and um we just did camping trip out in the desert it was magical so we spent about three weeks doing various camping trips and and uh, some of the stuff was you know very touristy and driving around but we were planning to leave and come back up to my home in idaho and uh and let me also say that both of us sort of a mission statement for the trip was to like have some sort of definitive proof of the experience i mean we had talked about that um uh, and and that was part of our, it was, I don't want to say our goal of the trip, mm, you know, mm. was like, and, and um, we've had a lot of synchronistic experiences together. We went to visit uh, Mesa Verde, and then our plan was after we visited Mesa Verde, which is in southwestern Colorado, mm. we were mm. going to drive back. And uh, driving down from Mesa Verde, my brakes uh, had problems in the car. It wasn't like, dramatic like the car was careening off uh, you know out of control or anything like that but they were definitely acting up so i took the car to a shop in cortez colorado the folks said you know we can't let you drive your car away you know legally we're mm. not allowed you die mm. <laughs> if you try to drive this car so i'm like okay so we're stuck here uh, which we didn't expect and then um we camped out that night we got a rental car which was very inexpensive we camped out that night just along the um side of a dirt road just outside of town it was a very pretty spot someone had suggested it as a nice spot to sleep beforehand natasha was apprehensive she was sensing some sort of nervousness which i was not i didn't have any of that feeling at all but she did um that night at 11:40 i remember waking up so we were in a tent just uh you know not in an organized campground just at the side of the road in a in um natasha woke up screaming and i uh work as a professional camper you know so i've spent a lot of time in tents and i woke up i screamed i have never been so terrified in my life mm-hmm. uh it lasted for maybe 10 minutes where we were i mean i have no way to describe this except that we were uh, the only way i can describe it is almost synthetic fear it was almost like fake fear it was like fear so profound and so ridiculously uh, over the top in its intensity that um it, it, it manufactured yeah. it was it wasn't rational i wasn't you know i have dealt with i've you know camped in alaska and dealt with grizzly bears outside my tent and i have never huh. felt the fear that i felt right right then uh natasha said she saw a face and that was and that's all she said and then she also said do you believe in evil ghosts and and uh, and I have no opinion either way about evil ghosts, but I did say no, just to hopefully to to calm the thing down. And um, mm. uh, so we held each other there in the tent, and and shortly thereafter, both of us went to sleep, which is seems crazy, because <laughs> I mean my heart was pounding, you know, like a like run, you know, up the stairs at the Empire State Building. So shortly 
I don't know when it happened, but then I had a dream that night, and it was a very vivid dream, and I will also say that the dream matched the exact interior of the tent. Uh, it felt different than normal, mm. a normal mm. dream. And in the dream, I was laying there, and I looked over, and there was one spot in the tent where it, where it was like, I, the only thing I can call it is a Mandela, or it was about the size of a pizza pan, and it was just a white circle with a single dot in the middle. And uh, strangely enough, that reminded me of, uh, I have ca- a slight cataract in my right eye, which um, mm. if I squint at the sun in a certain way or in a bright light in a certain way, I see that image. And I've actually mm. drawn that image, and it had, that's another story, that that image has its, mm. a life of its own in, as far as these experiences. But um, there was an interesting thing where I felt I saw a face in that image and tried to draw it, and I posted that online, and Natasha was familiar with that image. Mm. Um, so... I was lying there in the tent, and I began floating, and I floated right straight up, like going up an elevator, on my, laying on my back, and it's very difficult for me to say, like, like what happened. It felt like I, um, like reality sort of faded out, and and then I was in another realm. It didn't feel like mm. I was in a room or something. It felt like I was in another realm. And I remember saying to myself, I have to remember this. I have to remember this. I have mm. to remember this. I have to remember this. And then I found myself saying, am I on a table? Am I on a table? Am I on a table? I don't have any memory mm. of being on a table, but I do remember myself saying that. Mm. Um, and then I felt Natasha sort of say, you know, Mike, you're floating. And the next <laughs> thing I know, whoosh, I was back in the tent. And then I don't really know whether I woke up or, or what happened, but the next morning when we woke up, both Natasha and I were were, were like, okay, what happened? What, what happened last mm. night? Mm. And, um, and, sh- and I asked her, I said, you said you saw a face. She said, yeah, I saw a face. And I said, can you describe it? And she said, no, I can't describe it. And I was like, oh, please, just give it a try. Try to describe it. And she said, well, the only way I can describe it is it looked like that drawing you did of oh. that image you saw in your eye. <laughs> and then I said, "Now, where did you see it?" In the way she, the way I pictured it the night before, when she said she saw a face, was um, that she saw it like directly in front of her, in front of her eyes, and she pointed to this corner of the tent, um, and that was the corner where I saw that image in the dream right. realm, right. and um, and. So I thought that was very interesting. I didn't. She she gave me that information without um, without me having to ask. You know, I didn't. I felt like mm. I wasn't leading her in any way, or um, and I didn't share any of my own experiences. So that was very odd. So the next day, we um, were planning to go. Cause now we were stuck down, and you know, I had it was so it was going to be five days before the part arrived for the car. So I was like, okay, we got a rental car for five days. Let's uh, let's drive around the west. <laughs> So we went down to um, the Navajo Reservation, and there's a beautiful spot called Canyon de Chez. I don't know if you've ever been there. No, I uh, haven't. It's, I've it's heard in, of it's in, it's in northern, northeastern Arizona. It's beautiful, and it's on the mm-hmm. Navajo Reservation. And we also, um, through a, a friend named Miriam, who I brought up before, um, she suggested that we, or she basically insisted that um, if we go to Canyon de Chez, we have a um, sweat lodge experience with this, with this uh, shaman that's there. So we went in, um, that was the next thing we did. We drove to uh, Canyon de Chez. It was a beautiful drive. And, and I have to say, surprisingly, both Natasha and I were at peace with that mm. experience, even though we had, like, both, mm. you know, articulated the exact same profound fear. Um, uh, you know, like, the next morning, the fear was gone, and it seemed like we could look back at it and go, huh, oh, that was odd. 
when I took my shirt off that night, you know, we were camping and this is, you know, uh, living road trip, you know, so I didn't, I just slept in my shirt and got up the next morning and, and put a sweatshirt on and didn't continue driving around. But that night when I took my shirt off down in Canyon de Chez on the Navajo reservation, I had a scratch that went from my left shoulder down to my belly button. Mm. And when I looked closely at the scratch, the scratch was actually not a normal scratch, but it was a tiny little dots of a blister, if that makes sense. Mm. You had to get really close. It was tiny little blisters. I've never had anything like it. I've never seen anything like it before. Um, it, 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 uh, yeah, it really surprised both of us. And, and both of us were, were pretending to be in the role of UFO investigator, and neither of us thought to take a picture of it. The scratch healed up uh, rather quickly. Within a few days, mm. it was gone. And as soon as it disappeared, both Natasha and I kind of went, oh, we should have taken a picture, but we didn't. Um, and I will also say that the actual uh, sweat lodge experience was really great. I found it really profound and really um, uh, deep and transformative. And the theme of the, of the, of the um, sweat lodge experience, the way it was run by um, Howard, the, uh, the Native American, the Navajo, uh, that, was, that was running it, was basically to surrender. So I thought it was very interesting that this experience was bookended at the beginning and end with uh, with a person saying like I can't you I can't let you leave this town you'll die uh, was, the quote, was the quote from the uh, was the quote from the mechanic and then it ended up with this uh, you know very uh, sweet sh- shaman in a Navajo reservation saying you know like the the, the theme of this you know f- few hour long sweat lodge experience is surrender right <laughs> marvelous experience. Hmm. Yeah, I just am curious, any insights from your end? Well, as a psychologist, I'd say uh, synchronicities abound. All kinds of things happen to place yourself so that you could have contact at the ET level. I'll ask my guides if there's anything that they would uh, add to that, okay? Yes, information is available at various levels, nature, body, mind, and soul. At the level of nature, the participants are aligned with Native American culture through artifacts, history, and location. From the standpoint of body, mind, and soul, the individuals are experiencing part of their journey, their initiatory exploration not only within body mind and soul but also without the connection with the extraterrestrial entities who also are participating in their task their mission they seek to inform humans of their presence and their knowledge and Mike through his own personal experiences and through his documented reports with others is building a fabric, a social fabric, which is not merely a repetition of case after case after case, but on the other hand, is a collage of experiences which are connected not only through the individuals 
but also through the reporting of a video camera <clears throat> and a narration about those experiences. So yes, there is a connection. And if one looks at the eye or the white circle with a dot inside, <clears throat> there are several ways in which to interpret the symbol. Indeed, <clears throat> there are stations, television stations, which use a similar kind of mandala and a similar kind of symbol of the eye. Is the eye inward or is the eye outward? Also, some Native American cultures use that symbol to represent the earth. And so <clears throat> there are a variety of symbols and a variety of interpretations that can be placed not only on the fact that two people report a similar experience, but also describe themselves as searching for their own understanding, not only of their particular ET encounter, but also the combined ET encounter. If we look at the ways in which the symbol <clears throat> can be viewed as Earth, as I, <clears throat> as surrounding Earth, and then look at the experience. First, awaken with fear, and then see the symbol, and then feel <clears throat> that there is a floating or a movement or journey to another realm. One interpretation that is feasible to consider is we fear for planet Earth. We move through the heavenly realms for information that may help us to understand what we can do to help heal Mother Earth and to contact or communicate with Father Sky. And so the Native American scenario is significant. The fear and the symbol of Earth or the symbol of viewing Earth and humanity is significant. The movement into the heavenly realms is significant so that in symbolic form it can be said that both Natasha and Mike could interpret if they choose their experiences as being suddenly awake and fearful for earth then drowsy and sleeping and traveling to the heavens and then returning with information not yet conscious about how to help Earth and humanity. And indeed, this is what Mike is doing. He is helping humanity by documenting not only his own investigation of his own experience, 
but he is documenting his investigation of other people's experience. And whether they are frightened or calm, whether they are puzzled or placid, whether they are consciously aware or not consciously aware of what is happening, in general, there is communication to planet Earth and planetarians that they are on their way to becoming cosmic citizens. How soon and how difficult are questions, not whether the journey is underway. The journey is underway. The question is how difficult is the journey and how soon will the journey to the stars be complete? Okay, that's in the case. That's an important impression. Yes. <clears throat> Are there other comments at this time? No, not now. Thank you. All right. Thank you. And so this is Leo consciously saying that's what he heard from his guides, that it's a, uh, a symbolic journey. Does that make sense to Mike? That makes sense to me. It's interesting. Um, Natasha and I were sleeping on the ground. We were, you know, we oh, were in a uh-huh. tent, obviously, but we were, you know, like our, we were, I, and I consider, uh, I consider camping and sleeping outside a ritual act. I think it's a, a ritual act that I depend on. I, it's something that I very mm. dearly love and, and, uh, and, and resonate so deeply with is sleeping on the ground. And, um, so all the, that, that, to me, that's what I, that was, I was struck by how, how that, um, seems so important. To the whole, mm. to the whole narrative. Oh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. As if uh, you were in communion with Mother Earth, and uh, being in a place that is a Native American uh, ground, uh, seemed to be part of that whole scenario, the whole experience. And, and whether it's Native American ground or whether it's you know it's a, you know a parking lot in New York City, I mean you are you are still connected, still connected to the with earth, Mother yeah. Earth. So, yeah, right. Yeah. So, oh, that was that was quite beautiful, and and um, I'm very delighted by that kind of set of insights because those sets of insights that you just delivered aren't the nuts and bolts insights that that like you know um, yeah. uh, the pragmatic researcher would you know like the pragmatic researcher might want to go to that spot and take soil samples and and there may be a very real benefit to that and and there could be interesting yeah. insights mm-hmm. into that but um to me uh this, this more metaphoric than just the, image. yeah <clears throat> yeah it's like uh, uh the map ain't necessarily the territory <clears throat> you know general semantics says the map is not the territory uh the map is a reconstruction of the territory uh, but it's designed to help a person who is negotiating the territory. So uh, uh, if we look at the earth and uh, the sky, if we look at humanity and ETs as the uh, territory, uh, then what's the map? The map is that there's a communication going on between humanity and ETs. And maybe someday it'll be public and... Uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, public uh, and scientific technical knowledge, but right now it's symbolic and knowledge. And that is what my gut says, you know, yeah. to, to, and mm-hmm. I keep on calling this experience, you know, the term I use is the myth makers. 
um, whether uh-huh. that's that just yeah. works so nicely for me that you know the, this yeah. experience is being constructed or theatrically uh, given to to us, whether it's collectively everyone or very individual, um, and, and it's somehow being given to us by the myth makers rather than by little scientists in middle spaceships. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because it's more than just technical information that's being transmitted. Just like in a scout camp campfire, the uh, stories are providing information about how to uh, set up a tent, how to gather firewood, how to uh, make the camp uh, better organized. But it's also how do people work together and how do they see themselves as scouts or uh, so the so the myth is not only about uh, the earth and the sky, uh, not only about humans and uh, ETs, but about their interactions and how they work together. So it's it's building it's building uh, the myths, as you say, making the myths. You know. Yeah. Hey, we've been at it for um, a little over two hours now, just a few minutes over two hours, and, and uh, I have to say thank you so much for for taking the time to do this. Oh, it's been just thank wonderful. you. It's enjoyable. I appreciate it, and I hope that the uh, program goes well. Good, and and I just want to say that um, I have feel deeply honored to have met you and to know you and to consider you a a, a friend as well as a, a sort of a comrade in this in this very strange uh, uh, set of of very strange uh-huh. research. Ditto and likewise. Yeehaw. It's Good. Enjoyable. And yeah, and thank you so much. And, and I feel like I, this uh, this conversation lasted two hours, and and I feel like there's uh, I, I could go on for two hundred hours. <laughs> barely, I would enjoy every minute of it, and we would barely scratch the surface. <laughs> we'll do more of that some other time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. No. We don't need to do okay. that now. But so happy right. New Year. Happy New Year. Talk to you later. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Oh my God, that was great. Ooh, okay, you heard me at the very end there uh, exclaim uh, right from my heart, uh, oh my God, that was great. And uh, that is a truism, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, at one point he said, the map ain't necessarily the territory. And I, and I wish some more UFO researchers would um, heed those words. Uh, I could go on and on and on talking about Leo... And I have to say that um, I was delighted that he was so complimentary to me. And then I will also say that um, over the last, I guess, four years now since I've met him, he has put me in touch with some folks. He basically will call me up on the telephone and say, Mike, here's someone you should talk to. And he'll give me their phone number, and I will immediately call those people up. And they are, uh, without fail, people with extremely interesting stories and um and some of those folks i have uh, befriended and i consider my friends and other folks i have you know had long 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 heart to heart conversations over the telephone and i trust the guy i praise the guy uh i love the fact that um after 50 years he has uh he tells i don't want to say conclusion but the way he tells stories they come across as something uh, optimistic which which uh, tells me a lot. Uh, uh, during the summation, when I when I said goodbye to Leo on the phone, there, I said oh, we could talk for two hundred hours. And he laughed. Um, but but I but I think that's true. And as I try to 
create a little summation for this audio interview, I realized that I could just go on with with so many little anecdotes and so many, uh, well, uh, so many big anecdotes. Uh, you know, the guy's a pivotal player in the modern history of UFO research. I will share one story. I was in uh, Laughlin, Nevada. This would have been going back to 2008. Leo was one of the scheduled speakers there. So he was there and and, uh, very approachable. He ran the uh, evening support groups for experiencers. And then he was also around the whole time. And I am not kidding. When Leo would walk through a room... Uh, you know these, you know, cynical, grizzled, bitter UFO researchers, and they're they're out there. There's some folks that qualify in that 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 category. And when Leo would walk through a room, there was, and I am not exaggerating, there was a there was an audible hush, and a reverence, and people would watch him walk by. It was like, it was, you know, like watching the Dalai Lama pass through a Buddhist temple. The reverence was amazing. And and I th- that was very real, and I am not exaggerating. Okay, I, I said I wasn't going to tell. Uh, that was going to be my last story, but I'm going to tell one more. Here goes. Uh, Bud Hopkins told me in a personal conversation. He, he does not agree with Leo's conclusions. He does not agree with Leo's methods. And then, uh, you know, when leaving Bud's loft in New York City. He said, "You live near Leo, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah, I do." And I said, "And you're and you're you're close with Leo." And I said, "Yeah, I am." And he looked at me and he kind of said, "You know, I think you would be a good fit. You should, you should work with Leo," which I thought was really interesting coming from a guy who has such a uh, diametrically opposite um, research style uh, of Leo. And that struck me as being, uh, I guess, just really kind on Bud's part. And Bud certainly praises Leo's, you know, warm-hearted side. And recognizes that that as a therapist, as a psychologist, that is very important. And I certainly recognize it too. And I'm going to repeat myself here. I feel very honored to know the guy. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.